Let's begin this episode with a thought experiment. Imagine you're a local indigenous translator working on the translation of Deuteronomy. You don't have access to any resources besides a handful of translations in the trade language that you know, and that's because the commentaries and helps are only in English and locked up by copyrights that prohibit their translation. You also know zero Hebrew and almost nothing about textual criticism because that usually isn't taught to indigenous translators, so you get to Deuteronomy 33.2 and read all these different versions that have a rather confusing way of dealing with the last part of the verse. I'm Andrew Case. And you're listening to Working for the Word. So before we listen to some of these different versions of Deuteronomy 33, 2, Let's get a little feeling for the wider context. So let me read it to you in the ESV, starting in verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us Allah as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus Yahweh became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So that's the wider context. Now let's listen to some different versions and how they treat Deuteronomy 33.2. So let's start again with the ESV. So you can hear that again. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Now, for the rest of the versions, I'm only going to read the second half of the verse. So, NASB, And he came from the midst of myriads of holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. The Net Bible, He came forth with ten thousand holy ones. With his right hand, He gave a fiery law to them. KJV, he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. NIV, he came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. So what would you do in that translator's place? Remember our thought experiment here. You may simply go with the version that most people accept in your country, which is a standard practice. But here's the question. Would you be satisfied with that? Or would there always be a nagging question in the back of your mind as to why the difference was there in the first place? Wouldn't you feel better if you knew a little more about what the issues were before deciding on what to translate? So the consultant who works with you may not know because there actually are consultants who don't have a strong grasp of Hebrew or any grasp at all, believe it or not. Or if they do, they may have 
only a cursory knowledge of textual criticism. But for the sake of argument, let's say the consultant who works with you has all of this knowledge, but then has to explain this to you purely in layman's terms. Why? Well, because you don't have that training. So he's going to have to try to bring it down to your level. Most of it would probably go over your head because you have no categorical foundation in textual criticism or Hebrew, right? So even if he takes an hour to explain to you what's going on, You may just throw up your hands in the end because it's too complicated, strange, or foreign to you to understand. So this takes me back once again to my usual soapbox. We need well-trained translators. And that's not going to happen if we prioritize speed over careful sewing and investment for the long term. Let me say that again. We need well-trained translators, and that's not going to happen if we prioritize speed over careful sewing and investment for the long term. Now, when I was checking this verse in Misteko, the translator happened to be one of my Hebrew students, so she had a year of Hebrew under her belt to be able to track with what I was explaining. What she didn't have is a background in basic textual criticism. So, that was more challenging and fuzzy for her, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I've been working this past year on a series of free teaching videos in Spanish that give people a complete course in textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible. The first two videos are out, and the third is on its way, so the amount of work that goes into these videos is taking away a significant chunk from the time I have to prepare podcasts at the moment. That said, Let's look first at the Hebrew of the Masoretic text of Deuteronomy 33.2, and then at what the UBS translation handbook says about this. So here's what it says in Hebrew. V'ata merivavot kodesh, mimino eshdat lamo. Now, this is hard Hebrew, and I don't expect you to immediately understand this, even if you have a lot of Hebrew under your belt just by listening to it once without seeing it. But let's talk a little bit about the Hebrew here. Literally, it says, And he came from myriads of holiness, from his right hand, fire of law, from them or him. And I say from them or him because the lamo at the end, that pronominal suffix is ambiguous. It could be them or him. Even though in classical Hebrew, it's typically him, but as we'll see, there are some translations that have gone with them. Now, the Masoretes have noted a kathiv kare here, which means that there is one thing written, but the scribes signal that it should be read differently from how it is written. And their note has to do with the word eshdat, which they say should be read as two separate words, Esh and dat. Esh is the word for fire, and dat is an Aramaic loan word for law. And we'll talk more about this issue in a bit. So, once again, a very literal rendering is And he came from multitudes of holiness, from his right hand, fire of law for them or for him. So, here's what the handbook says on this phrase. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones. 
The NRSV has with him were myriads of holy ones following the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Syriac, and Vulgate texts. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament text project, which we've talked about in past episodes, go check those out if you don't have any idea what this is. The Hebrew Old Testament text project gives the reading of the Masoretic text a C rating, which isn't great. You know, it's like grades in school in the United States, A, B, C, D, F. So C is kind of average. It's not really strong certainty that they have that that was the original text. So they're talking about, first of all, the v'ata, which is not, by the way, starting with an ayin, is starting with an aleph. And they prefer a reading of and with him over and he came, because ata is kind of an unusual word for to come or to go. And their preferred reading here represents different vowels for the same consonants of the Hebrew text. And in the following phrase, from the ten thousands of holy ones, the HOTTP gives it a B rating. And it states that from, the preposition from, functions as partitive, a form that refers to a part or quantity of something. In this instance, some, as in, and with him, some of the ten thousands. But the text is handled differently by others. NJPSV has, and approached from, ribehot kodesh. So basically, they take the phrase merivavot kodesh in Hebrew as a name, and they just transliterate it as ribehot kodesh. And the NJB, New Jerusalem Bible, has, from them, he came after the meeting at Kodesh. They interpret Kodesh as a name of a place. Then the handbook says it is recommended that translators follow the NRSV's model above. The holy ones are angels. The TEV follows this interpretation with 10,000 angels were with him. In languages where angels will be translated as heavenly messengers, it will be better to say something like his heavenly helpers or even his soldiers or warriors. Then we get into the phrase, with flaming fire at his right hand. So the RSV adds the footnote, Hebrew uncertain. NJPSV has a similar note and translates lightning flashing at them from his right. It is difficult to envisage flaming fire at Yahweh's right hand. It seems to be a way of speaking of lightning, which Yahweh carries as a weapon, which we know from the Psalms, right? The language of this verse pictures Yahweh as a warrior. An alternative translation model for this verse is, Yahweh came down from Mount Sinai to help us. He rose like the sun and shone on his people from Edom, and his light shone from Mount Paran. Thousands of his angels were with him, and fire flamed from his hand. So that's the end of the UBS Translator's Handbook on this verse. Now let's check out another commentary that I found very enlightening and useful. It's called Ellicott's Commentary for English Readers. 
And here's what he says about this. The original expression, eshdat, or eshdat, sometimes written as one word and sometimes as two, has created some difficulty. Esh is fire, and dat, if taken as a distinct word, is law. But dat does not appear elsewhere in the Hebrew of the Old Testament until we meet it in the book of Esther, where it occurs frequently. It is also found in Ezra 8.36. In the Chaldee, or Aramaic, of Daniel and Ezra, it occurs six times. Modern authorities assert that it is properly a Persian word. But, since it is found in the Chaldee or Aramaic of Daniel, it was in use among the Chaldeans before the Persian Empire. The word has Semitic affinities. There seems no reason to doubt that the word dat had obtained a place both in Chaldee and in Hebrew at the time of the captivity. It is perfectly possible that its existence in Chaldee dates very much earlier. So this is the big debate. A lot of people would say, oh, okay, well, it's Esther and Daniel and Ezra. It's late, late Hebrew. This would have never appeared in Deuteronomy. It's impossible. So we must remember, continuing to quote Ellicott, we must remember that Chaldee was the language of the family of Abraham before they adopted Hebrew. Quote, a Syrian ready to perish was my father, is the confession dictated by Moses in Deuteronomy 26.5. Syriac and Chaldee in the Old Testament are names of the same language. In the Babylonian captivity, the Jews really returned to their ancestral language. It is therefore quite conceivable that Chaldean words lingered among them until the Exodus. And this word, dat, if it be a true Chaldean word, may be an example But obviously, these Chaldean reminiscences would be fewer as the years rolled on. The three Targums all take dat to be law in this place. The Septuagint has angels instead of the combination eshdat. Possibly the word was taken as ashdot, the plural of the Chaldee, ashda, meaning rays, and so angels. Compare He maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. They ran and returned as a flash of lightning, Psalm 104.4 and Ezekiel 1.14. It is also possible that the Septuagint read R instead of D or Resh instead of Dalit in the word, which are both very easy to confuse. If you don't know Hebrew, these two letters are very, very easy to confuse. So it's possible that the Septuagint translators read resh instead of dalit in the word which they had before them, and that they arrived at the meaning angels through the Hebrew word sharat to minister. Fiery law will yield a good sense. The only question is whether dat, law, can be reasonably supposed to have occurred in the Mosaic writings. If the word were at all generally known at that period, to whatever language it properly belonged, it would hardly have escaped such a man as Moses. I think it quite possible that the common translation may be right. The Hebrew commentators accept it. The only alternative I can suggest is that of the Septuagint, which cannot be verified with certainty. 
And so ends Ellicott's commentary. So isn't that fascinating? Now, the standard translation for Latin America still is the Reina Valera 1960, which translates, Y vino de entre diez millares de santos, con la ley de fuego a su mano derecha, which in English is, And he came from among ten thousand saints with the law of fire at his right hand. At the end of the day, after explaining all of these things to the translator I was working with in Misteco, she decided to go with almost exactly what the Reina Valera 1960 had. So here's what we ended up with in her language. And with him came 10,000 angels, and in his right hand he carried the burning law. Notice the translation of angels instead of saints for the sake of clarity here. So perhaps this sounds a bit anticlimactic, right? But as we've seen before, Bible translation is often a lot of work to arrive at something fairly basic or traditional. Now, switching gears, I want to talk about another little thing that I ran into the other day. It's a verse from Jonah that I was working through recently with my Hebrew students here in Mexico. There's an interesting construction that doesn't come through in many translations, even in a footnote, and it's still debated. I found a really helpful note in the Net Bible about it, so I wanted to share that with you. But but first, here's the verse in context. Jonah 3, 1 through 3. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, Let's check out the Hebrew of that last phrase. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, for those of you who know Hebrew, you might have heard something a little unexpected just going off of the English that says, Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Because you heard Lelohim, which means to God. So literally, now Nineveh or and Nineveh was a great city to God. Three days journey in breadth. So let me read to you the note from the Net Bible. Hebrew has, was a great city to God or gods. The greatness of Nineveh has been mentioned already in 1-2. And 3-2, what is being added now is the question. Does the term Lelohim, to God or gods, number one, refer to the Lord's personal estimate of the city? Number two, does it speak of the city as belonging to God? So a lament of possession there. Three, does it refer to Nineveh as a city with many shrines and gods? Or four, is it simply an idiomatic reinforcement of the city's size? Interpreters do not agree on the answer. 
to introduce the idea either of God's ownership or of dedication to idolatry, though not impossible, is unexpected here, being without parallel or follow-up elsewhere in the book. The alternatives, great, large, important, in God's estimation, consider Psalm 8941b, for example, or the merely idiomatic, exceptionally great, slash large, slash important, could both be amplified by focus on physical size in the following phrase, and are both consistent with emphases elsewhere in the book. Jonah 4.11 again puts attention on the size of the population. If great is best understood as a reference primarily to size here, in view of the following phrase and verse 4a, Jonah went one day's walk, rather than to importance, this might weigh slightly in favor of an idiomatic, quote-unquote, very great or large. Though no example with God used idiomatically to indicate superlative has exactly the same construction as the wording in Jonah 3.3. And they give examples of other places where God, the word Elohim, is used to communicate largeness or something being enormous. Examples include Genesis 23.6. So let me read that. Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. So that's the ESV. They did not translate the idiom for the English reader. The KJV, however, actually did, which is kind of ironic. They say, hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. So the literal prince of God in Hebrew is taken as an idiom for mighty or great prince. NASB even says, you are a mighty prince among us. NET says you are a mighty prince among us, and the NIV says you are a mighty prince among us. So there's an, there's an example, but as the NET note said, it does not have the exact same construction as the wording in Jonah 3.3. And these other examples that they list do not. So Genesis 30 verse 8, Exodus 9.28, 1 Samuel 14.15, Psalm 36, 6, Psalm 80, verse 10. Let me read to you another one of those, Exodus 9, 28. The ESV says, Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. So once again, they did not take this as idiomatic, but the KJV did. They said, Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail. So, mighty thunderings and hail instead of God's thunder and hail. Now, the NASB did not do that. They did not take it as an idiom. The NAT did, for the mighty thunderings and hail are too much. And then the NIV actually did not do anything with it. They did not take it as an idiom. They just left it completely out. They said, pray to to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. And in Spanish, they did not take it as an idiom either in the Reina Valera. So you're starting to see some of the cracks in these translations. For instance, the ESV in Jonah 3.3 does take this construction as an idiom. 
And so, the word God is concealed in their translation. But then they go on in these other places that are similar, and they do not take it as an idiom. So, I think there may be some room for improvement there. So, what do you think? Should translations include a footnote with alternative options for this verse? Or should they just keep the status quo? After surveying dozens of English versions on Bible Hub, I found that all of them are unanimous in dealing with this construction, except for, wait for it, <laughs> Young's literal translation, which has, and Nineveh hath been a great city before God, a journey of three days. But that was really surprising to me that all of them, I can't find one. There's probably some out there because you know, I didn't have time to check all 5,000 of our English translations, but this was unanimous in everything that I saw. They all use words like enormous, extremely great, very great, or exceedingly great to communicate the presence of to God or lelohim in that verse. So anyway, I hope some of you found this to be interesting food for thought. These are the sorts of things Bible translators often have to grapple with, and many times they simply end up going with tradition for the sake of acceptability. That's not a bad thing, but I want to encourage people to do it with their eyes wide open to the issues, understanding exactly what their options are to make a truly informed decision. Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can help others discover it and learn more about Bible translation by leaving a review on your podcast platform, which would be awesome. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help us all treasure the Bible more and go deeper into it and become like the man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1.